Okay, hello everybody, today is Friday, another Anything Goes Friday, welcome to the show, and as you saw from the ad at the beginning, this episode is indeed brought to you by McFarland Books, and this is the first episode where I will be talking about one of their titles, The Flat Tire Murders by Michael P. Burns, and we will be exploring the mystery of the Miami Strangler, which I have to tell you, sounds just like a dark and sinister legend from the state of Florida, but I would always like to remind you guys that you can download this program for free at Launchpad 1. There's a link to that in the description box. You can download the audio as a pure podcast, take it on the go anywhere and anyhow. You can download the video version using YouTube Premium, but you have to pay for that. Launchpad 1 is free. And a great way to support the show, in addition to just listening to the uh, videos on YouTube or places like Launchpad 1, is to go over to Amazon.com and have a look at my book, Killer on a White Horse, by me, Ned DeHaan. It is a novel, murder mystery, inspired by the Zodiac-Manson connection, but fictional. And there is always the Teespring page. Feel free to have a look at some of the merchandise. And remember, being weird is not a crime. But yes, this is the first um, subject from McFarlane Books that I will be covering. And a big thank you to Michael P. Burns, whom I've been corresponding with. It's always nice to uh, talk about these true crime cases with the writer. So, to give us a little bit of an introduction about the Miami Strangler, and I'm citing everything here from uh, the book The Flat Tire Murders, which I recommend to you guys. Between 1964 and 1971, ten women were strangled in Dade County in Florida, with five women strangled between May and October of 1970 alone. There, three of the other victims were found with cloth ligatures around their neck. There appeared to be a Miami Strangler, according to Dr. Dr. Joseph H. Davis, Dade County Medical Examiner. Okay, did you hear that? 1970 alone, that five women were attacked, and that is between the months of May and October. Again, very short time frame. Does this remind you of any other true crime cases where there could be a lot of pre-canonical activity, and then there are five crimes that took place, five murders that took place, I mean, it reminds me heavily of the Zodiac Killer in California, where the Zodiac operated over a 10-month time frame from 1968 to 1969, and it really is just about 10 months. It's December of 1968 with the Lake Herman Road murders, concluding with the Paul Stein shooting on October 11th of 1969, and Jack the Ripper also operated in a very similar way, but the time frame with Jack the Ripper is much smaller, going directly from the summer to the fall. Jack the Ripper began his canonical activities on um, August 31st of 1888. Uh, no, what was the final date? And that one was at November 9th of 1888. Very small time frame. But in both cases, there are these five confirmed victims. And then there is an enormous amount of speculation as to, was this person actually a serial killer who just had a very small reign of terror? Or was he operating well before? Because with the Zodiac Killer, for example, they have the pre-canonical crimes, which began perhaps as early as 1962, and then 63, 64, 66, 67, 68. And they believe that someone was a murderer, but only attributed the persona to that amount of time. But with the Miami Strangler, we don't seem to have that exact braggadocious nature of something like the Zodiac Killer or Jack the Ripper. Both the Zodiac and Jack the Ripper wrote in letters. With the Miami Strangler, it seems like someone is perhaps trying to cover their tracks a little bit more, or it's not about 
openly admitting to the press and the police that they have committed these crimes. But I just wanted to point out how it's like the, the actions of the serial killer are getting closer and closer. It's almost what I used to call the epicenter theory, but that's not really an epicenter. That's almost like a finish line theory. It's just getting faster and faster until the end. But let's go back to August 17th of 1964, and this day saw the murder of Mary E. McGreevy, who was 68 years old, and she was murdered, actually smothered to death, by a pillow. And from talking about some other true crime cases on this channel, the way the medical examiner looks at the body is whether or not certain parts of the neck are broken, whereas in strangulation, the um, hyoid bone in the neck can also be damaged, but if someone is smothered with a pillow, then that bone is not damaged in the same way. Okay, that occurred on, as we said, August 17th of 1964, and pay attention to the victim's age, 68 years old. About seven months later, March 8th of 1965, another murder occurred, which the police would later speculate was the work of the same killer, and that was Sylvia Valdez. But she wasn't in her 60s. Sylvia Valdez was 38 years old. So, already we're seeing some very abnormal stuff. If this is indeed the same serial killer, if this is indeed a Miami Strangler going around, serial killers tend to operate within a particular age demographic. Sometimes you can see serial killers that are targeting men and women. Sometimes you can see serial killers that only target women who are of a certain height, of a certain body type, who are of a certain age. I do think it's rather abnormal for um, someone to go after a 68-year-old victim and then go after a 38-year-old victim. But some people believe that there are serial killers who simply are just focused on murdering. Yes, they might operate within their sexual orientation, but they just want to murder someone. They don't care if they're 68 years old or 38 years old or 18 years old. They just wanted to commit the crime. But here's an interesting detail about the murder of Sylvia Valdez, and that is that she had been shot twice behind the right ear with a 22 caliber pistol, but she was indeed strangled, and the killer left a black silk scarf tied around her neck, so this Miami Strangler is also uh, shooting people. But what really um, I thought was impressive is that uh, Michael P. Burns also introduces a suspect to these crimes. And already, there is a man who is doing some very suspicious behavior, and his name is Calvin Jones Jr. Could he have been the murderer of Sylvia Valdez? Let's get an introduction to the suspect. Sylvia was employed as a salesperson at Lana's, a woman's apparel shop on 141 East Flagler Street in Miami. On Monday, March 8th, Sylvia left work shortly after 9 p.m. and walked to the Albright parking lot on 121 Northwest 1st Street, east of Florida's Coast Railway tracks. There she discovered her Nash Rambler had a flat tire. Around 9.30 p.m., a parking lot attendant called the Triangle Garage and an employee named Calvin Jones Jr. came to change her tire. Jones later told the police when he left Valdez at her car at about 10.30 p.m., she was speaking to two Cuban men. And as you can see from the title of the book by Michael P. Burns, it's about the flat tire murders, right? There are two reasons why they want to suspect Calvin Jones. Okay, now there are actually three reasons. The, thir the first is that 
if he was involved with anything to do with changing her flat tire, his fingerprints would be found near her vehicle. His fingerprints would be found anywhere on her belongings. There's always that some type of explanation. The second is Calvin Jones had a very intense criminal record. and They said that he would have been arrested in the double digits, but this would actually would have been around his 10th arrest if um, they were to pull him in for that, for this crime. And the third is he would have been the last person to see her alive. So it really isn't just blame the guy with a criminal record. There are also all of these explanations about how he could get away with this. All right, they find his fingerprints on her car. Well, yeah, she had a flat tire, and I'm a parking lot attendant, and they asked me to help change the flat tire because she was unable to. But then that person ends up murdered. You definitely get suspicious. The next murder victim was Bernadita Gonzalez, who was a 44-year-old woman from Caracas, Venezuela, who had moved to Miami in 1953, and also somewhat of a different age group, but 38 years old and 44 years old, I think that that is relatively within one time frame, but seeing that one victim was 68 years old, and we are not um, not even getting started on that subject, Bernadita Gonzalez went missing in February of 1966. She was last seen visiting the Ulysses Beauty Parlor at 1661 Coral Bay in Miami wearing a blue knit dress, white coat, and shoes, and a wristwatch and a pearl ring. Eight weeks later, her body was found in an advanced state of decomposition floating face down in Levitz Lake, located on an old Apalaka Navy airfield property north of Miami-Dade Community College. But here is something quite different. We said that one victim was smothered with a pillow, one victim was shot with a gun, and there was the uh, black um, stocking around her neck. Well, Bernadita died from a severe blow to the skull, which the medical examiner thought might have been inflicted by a hatchet. So, are you noticing something very inconsistent about this um, serial killer yet? Some people still believe that all of these crimes are connected. Serial killers are famed for having a pattern of operation. They are famed for finding a way to kill someone and using that method because it works. What a lot of people in those true crime documentaries that you can watch on YouTube for free like to say is, somebody starts out by committing a crime, most likely in their late teens, early 20s, maybe even late 20s. Sometimes the first crime isn't even planned, but they learn how to commit a murder and get away with it, and they get addicted to the adrenaline rush, the sense of power. Sometimes there is a sexual release that comes with committing a murder like that, and then they will use the same method over and over again, because that's what worked for them the first time. However, after talking about many different serial killers and true crime cases here on Black Box Online Radio, and then once again I invite you to like and subscribe, follow along with all of these true crime discussions, there is almost always an exception to this pattern method. No matter what serial killer you're going to be reading up, oh, well, he strangled his victims. However, there's usually a victim that is um, that was killed in a different way. And the typical reasons are, number one, the person fought back, and then the, the serial killer didn't want to be caught, so he had to resort to a new method. The second is someone may have interrupted this person when they were trying to either commit the crime or get away. 
so they had to murder someone. And that's what you'll typically find if somebody has committed a crime where and they're trying to get away and then someone's like, hey, what's going on? And that person gets interrupted, so then they just murder the eyewitness. And also, sometimes serial killers resort to their destructive tendencies when they're trying to get out of a problem. Maybe they owe somebody a lot of money and, I mean, murder isn't even the primary objective. They're just trying to get rid of a problem, their financial problem, but they resort to murder as a means to, of, of doing so. But you will see time and time again that serial killers operate outside of their patterns of behaviors. But um, that's what happened to Bernadita Gonzalez. Now here's another odd part, but there might be an explanation for this. The murder ceased for over three years, only to resume in August of 1969. The next victim was Sheravan Dolores Wooten, a 21-year-old black woman who lived at 741-7401, I hope I said that correctly, Northwest 19th Avenue. Sheravan was last seen at 10 p.m. on a Friday when she left home without giving any destination. On August 16th of 1969, her body was found on a dirt road between two houses at 20th Avenue and 76th Street. She had been strangled to death at some time between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. Her neck bore fingernail marks, and her clothing, like the clothing of the prior victims, was pulled up over her breasts. Did you hear the age of the victim in that one? 21 years old. So, all right, operating outside of a particular age demographic, that's something, but 68 years old for the first victim, 21 for the second victim... I mean, at this time, I would just like to ask you guys, what do you think about that? Do you think that that is um, typical behavior of a serial killer? Or do you believe, I would just like to ask you guys in the audience, do you believe that all of those crimes are connected? And I do want to reemphasize a point. It is possible for someone to go after women and not care about the age demographic because, once again, it's about committing the crime. It is about committing the murder and that could be the prime ambition. It doesn't have to be a 21-year-old or a 68-year-old. This serial killer might simply not have cared. But the next one. The murders rapidly accelerated in 1970. Mary Louise Clark Danford, age 64, lived alone in an A-frame house at Northwest 79th Street. And she was known as the Rose Lady. Her house was called the Rose Garden Nursery, whose neighbors often stopped to buy her roses. She had a son named Clark, who was 27 years old and a career army staff sergeant who had served two tours of duty in Vietnam. On Tuesday, May 5th of 1970, in the early evening, Mary drove her 1956 Buick to a neighborhood supermarket and bought a bag of groceries and returned home later. After she did not make her usual telephone call, concerned friends stopped by to check on her. Mary was found lying on her bed without her undergarments and a pillow covering her face. Her turtleneck sweater was pushed up. The killer had left a half-inch-long bruise on her throat. She, too, had been strangled. All right, now, this is a crime that's occurring in her home, and Mary is somewhat of a well-known person, so because of the uh, Rose Garden nursery that she has very visible could that have been a home intruder, like a burglary gone wrong, so to speak? And that theory is definitely discussed, but now we're beginning to see somewhat more of a concentrated and calculated uh, pattern where this person is attacking women and using 
Asphyxiation seems to be somewhat common, but not always, because as we said, one victim was struck in the head with a blunt object and maybe even something that was a sharp object like a hatchet, but then their shirts are always pulled up and their breasts are exposed. Now it seems like a pattern is beginning to form, and bear in mind that this is in 1970. Less than a month later, on June 2nd, Ruth Boehner, a 64-year-old former historian in the Air Force, originally from Bridgewater, Massachusetts, was found dead at the Cortez Hotel, where she had lived for about a month. Hotel manager John Sinclair discovered her body at 8.45 a.m. Ruth had died from severe injuries to the head, jaw, and neck inflicted by a blunt instrument, but she had also been strangled, and the highway neck and her bow and the hyoid bone in her neck was broken. That's the thing I was talking about earlier. Two months later, an 84-year-old widow, Maddie Ophelia Harris, was found dead. Maddie lived in Edson Courts. She was found on the kitchen floor. Her nightgown also pulled up in a necktie tied loosely around her neck. She also had been killed by strangulation. So, here is a commonality. This person is murdering women, sometimes removing their undergarments, but exposing their breasts, and absolutely horrible, horrible and sinister. But we finally seem to have some type of commonality and can understand why the authorities and researchers believe that these crimes are linked. Very different choice of weapons when it comes to blunt force trauma, strangulation, smothering somebody with a pillow, gunshot wound to the head. I do think that that is very abnormal. And the gunshot wound to the head in particular, because here's another way that some serial killers operate. They find weapons that are found nearby. They find whatever weapon that they can use to murder someone because they don't want to bring anything with them. Like, they'll just grab the nearest blunt object that they can find, or the nearest rope or chain that they can find, and they will use that to strangle someone. So they don't have to bring any of their own material, and it's just something that was already at the crime scene. It's a way to avoid capture. But we have an 84-year-old victim. The youngest victim we've talked about has been 21 years old. Absolutely not paying attention at all to the age range, if these are indeed the same killer. The next murder occurred in October. Regina Bonanno, age 48, was a tall, thin, deaf, mute woman who was always smiling but had few friends. She had left her husband and son in 1964 and moved to downtown Miami to start a new life. When she could not find work, she took shelter at bus stops selling cards and pens. She eventually received Social Security and moved into a rundown apartment at 11 South East 7th Street and a place known as New May Court. On October 10th, Regina was found dead in her home. She had been bound and tied, her panties shoved in her mouth, and her head inside a pillowcase and a scarf and her bra were wrapped around her neck. Alright, now this is also something that is mm, not very uh, consistent at all. Now we have some new details. With Regina Bonanno, she's 48 years old, and this, this is indeed the same killer. Again, not paying a lot of attention to age. Someone in their 30s, on 38, 68, 84, 21, now 48. But then... You have someone who is, okay, he's exposing the breasts of the woman, removing the undergarments, putting her panties in her mouth. I don't think we've heard that exact detail yet. And her head has been shoved inside a pillowcase. The bra is actually what's wrapped around her neck. As I said, some serial killers make makeshift weapons, but that is very bizarre behavior. 
Less than two weeks after the murder of Regina Bonanno, there was the crime that took place on October 26th, and that was when they found the body of Patrice Finer Newkirk, and she was discovered in the trunk of her car. Did you notice something, though, with the last um, victims that they were found inside their own homes, but Patrice Newkirk was found in the in the trunk of her car, and she was 36 years old. She had ex she received extraordinarily severe blows to her skull. A torn piece of her dress was tied in a squeeze knot loosely around her neck. The medical examiner concluded that she had been hit with a broad, flat instrument that had smashed her skull. The damage was so severe it was described as that it's something that would have been seen in an automobile fatality or a fall from a building. But before you're like, all right, well, all you really have is um, some cases of blunt force trauma and some cases of strangulation, there's going to be a suspect in this crime, too. And it is none other than our previous suspect from before, Calvin Jones Jr. Police questioned Calvin Jones Jr., who was then 34 and lived at 635 Northwest First Court. Jones was now an employee of a truck driving company, the Mom Chemical Company, and he had recently been released from prison after serving his fourth felony conviction. When there is a gap in serial killer activity, many times people come up with the theory that, okay, there's this gap in serial killer activity because the perpetrator went to jail, because they were incarcerated. And you heard about how there's this gap in the Miami Stranglers activities. Were all these crimes committed by Calvin Jones? And yes, there are some differences, but the reason why I wanted to tell you that not everyone sticks to the pattern is there is not a rule book on how to be a murderer. In fact, it's quite to the contrary. They don't follow the rules. But yes, he was brought in and questioned by the police, and he said that he figured prominently in two of the murders, but never specified which ones. Jones was reportedly had a history with Patrice Newkirk. However, he was never charged with any of the murders. And... I'm not really sure the details of their investigation, but you have this guy, Calvin Jones, showing up in two of these suspected Miami Strangler incidents. I mean, oof, absolutely horrifying. And there is something we always have to remember. The authorities have material and information that they don't always put out to us very clearly. There could be other reasons why they suspect that these crimes are unified. The last murder that may be connected to the Miami Strangler occurred in 1971. The partially clad body of Mary Frances Sims, a 31-year-old Miami housewife, was discovered flung across her bed in her home at 6700, I should have just said 6700, Northwest 5th Avenue. She had been sexually assaulted, strangled, and her throat had been cut. Her bed was covered in blood. Also something that is very, um, very abnormal. I mean, I mean, this is something that isn't that we really haven't heard before about anyone getting their throat slashed. There is a particular sentence in the flat tire murders that I thought was um, rather odd. It says all the victims were women and all were white except one. Um, yeah, it sounds like a lot. Out of them have some Hispanic origins, though, and that's the way. When I was reading this for the first time, I thought that that was going to be the mo of the serial killer, going after just slightly older. Latina women, but that is not consistent at all. You can see from the crimes that occurred closer to 1970, 
if this is indeed a single serial killer, this person is going after, um, well, just women of any race or origin, because there's a 21-year-old black female who was murdered, and on average, I do think that serial killers tend to um, operate within one age and race demographic. Race should not be excluded from that. But all the victims were women, all were white except one, and all the crimes appear to be sexually motivated, with three of the murders being suffocation from a pillow. In the three later murders, the victims had cloth looped around their neck, one victim had been manually strangled, and another died from severe blows to the head. In the last five murders, three victims were older than 60, and two were in their 30s. If one individual committed the murders, police believe that he was likely a sexual sadist with a fetish for attacking vulnerable women in their homes. Ah, yes, but one of the final murders did have um, the perpetrator putting the body in the trunk of the car, as we um, have laid out. Dr. Joseph H. Davis of the Dade County Medical Examiner remarked on the similarities in the murders, marked similarities, and announced that there appears to be a Miami Strangler. Uh, the strangulation does seem to be rather common. However, I do believe we've gone through at least one case where the woman was um, struck in the head with the blunt object that sounded like the hatchet. And um, there was the final crime for... Um, I believe one year, but we uh, do have one that we will talk about now. We talked about the final crime of 1970, but the Miami Strangler operated up until 1971, and the final victim was Clara Armali, and there's a photo of her that says, Clara Armali was a 25-year-old Miami secretary whose murder in, in 1971 marked the end of the Miami Strangler killings, and um, from a cold case website has provided her photo. Clara Armali was a 25-year-old brunette who lived in Miami for seven years. Having originated from Bowling Green, Kentucky, she worked as a legal secretary at 8130 Southwest 98th Avenue in her home on a street facing wooded land located in a newly developed residential area called Sunset Park. Her home was off North Kendall Drive and west of Dadeland Shopping Center. Clara was estranged from her husband, Anthony J. Armali, a recreation supervisor with the Miami Parks Department. The couple had a two-year-old girl. Clara was last seen alive on Saturday, September 11, 1971, and, picked up her, and her child had been picked up for a weekend visit. A party had been scheduled for 4 p.m. that day, but Clara failed to attend when she did not report for work. On Monday, September 13th, her husband checked their home and discovered her nude body after 9 a.m. The medical examiner de determined that Clara had been dead for about 12 hours. An electrical appliance cord was found near the body, which led speculation to believe that it was an intruder and it he had strangled her. However, there were no marks on her body or signs of a struggle. When questioned, neighbors did not report anything unusual. Her husband was so upset by the discovery that he went into a state of shock and had to be sedated at Baptist Hospital. Well, what do you make of um, all this so far? Um, and Clara was 25 years old, as we said. So that is um, also not very consistent with this, um, what I thought the serial killer was going to be. Someone up targeting older Latino women? No. This is someone who has had victims as young as 21 and as old as 24. And what, I would just like to know your responses to the theories about the Miami Strangler, who is somewhat of a serial killer legend in the state of Florida. But there are um, some 
things that I notice that are quite different about the murder of Clara Armali, that her body is found nude, not thus just having her shirt or the nightgown or whatever she's wearing pulled up. I notice that that happened in a lot of the crimes, that the sim the, simply the person is keeping the clothes on but exposing her, and there was that one instance where the killer put the panties in the victim's mouth. I mean, what 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 is your response to um, all this? If you have anything to say, I would like to um, see your comments down in the section below. And um, I do really appreciate um, discussing this with Michael P. Burns, and perhaps he will um, share some more info with us about some other crimes that are currently happening in the state of Florida. But, you know, this is just the beginning of the book, and this goes on. There's also... Um, fascinating chapter on the Gold Sox Strangler, which I hope to talk about here on Black Box All Nine Radio. And if anyone would like to um, read this book in its entirety, it is um, called The Flat Tire Murders, and it is written by Michael P. Burns from McFarland Books, and you can get it at their website, mcfarlandbooks.com. Also, have a look for um, anywhere electronic books are sold. The full subtitle of the book I mean, everything included is The Flat Tire Murders, Unsolved Crimes of a South Florida Serial Killer by Michael P. Burns. One more time at mcfarlandbooks.com. And that's all for me now, though, so I will just remind you guys that you can write the show at blackboxonlineradio at aol.com the way that Michael Burns did and put me in touch with McFarland Books. Big thank you to all of them for all of their support and also just thank you guys for listening all the way to the end. Black Box Online Radio at AOL.com one more time. And you can also get me on Facebook. My personal Facebook is in the description box. And there's also a page on Facebook called Black Box Online Radio. And of course, BlackBoxNed88 on Instagram. There are many ways to keep in touch. And I will see you over there on Instagram for the bonus podcast. Until next time. <laughs>